started off with the idea and the rendered drawings of how nice it would be to be up on the rooftop seeing the Budapest skyline and landscape. But they weren't disappointed either that this green rooftop would have biodiversity and heat island reduction value as well. Creating Green Cities, the podcast about urban nature-based solutions. We feature stories from people and projects that are greening Europe's cities with their ideas and initiatives. Welcome back to the fourth episode of our podcast, Creating Green Cities, a podcast created by Ecologic Institute as part of the Naturevation Project. In the face of increasing environmental, economic and social pressures, sustainable development has become a strategic issue for cities in Europe and around the world. Sustainability is central when it comes to responding to climate change and in enabling long-term growth, security and social well-being. One of the ways to achieve sustainability in addressing diverse societal challenges is by using the multiple benefits of nature. This is the core focus of our podcast series. We're focusing on nature-based solutions and have looked at some concrete examples that have been applied across Europe through the stories of our guests from Malmö, Barcelona, Utrecht and Budapest. They've answered questions like how can nature-based solutions be assessed and monitored? What role do governance and policy strategies play in their successful implementation? And which challenges have you faced in designing and implementing nature-based solutions? We invite you to listen to our previous episodes to hear the answers. But before you do that, please tune in for today's topic. We're going to discuss business models. Nature-based solutions are diverse and can be applied in different contexts and areas to achieve different aims. But who should pay for them and why? Well, traditionally, we look at the public sector to pay for public benefits, which would mean nature-based solutions being financed by municipalities, water boards or governments. However, this is often not so easy in reality. There are several considerations that need to be taken into account. First of all, public funds are often limited. Secondly, nature in cities offers a wide range of potential benefits, but a single government department is usually only responsible for one specific topic and its objectives, like achieving good air quality or managing water. There's rarely collaboration across departments to share budgets and resources towards a joint project or aim. Yet if you only deal with one aspect of nature-based solutions, you neglect the value it provides in addressing other urban challenges at the same time. This is where business models that account for the multiple benefits of nature-based solutions come into play. Now, what do we mean when we talk about business models? Well, a business model describes how firms create and capture value through their activities. Before implementing nature-based solutions, there are a few questions you should think about. What value is being created and for whom? How is this value being delivered, in other words, with what resources and partners? And how is the value of nature in cities being captured? This brings us back to the question, who will pay for the benefits that nature-based solutions provide? Due to the limitations of public funds that we've just described, such business models often include one or more sources of private, public or mixed funding. To be able to understand this challenge in more detail, let's look at a few concrete examples. 
In the first episode, we talked to Logan Strenchok, who told us about the rooftop garden on one of the buildings of the Central European University in the centre of Budapest. This garden was built as part of a redevelopment process of the university. Logan explains how the idea for this roof garden was born and how it was financed. The redevelopment of the university was completely privately funded from the board of trustees of the university decided that it was around 20 years that the university existed. It originally started as one or two buildings on the Nador Street in Budapest and eventually came to occupy six buildings in the 5th district in Budapest. There was a difficult decision that had to be made. Should the university move to a completely rural location and actually build a campus, or should it stay in its already existing city location and try to reimagine those six buildings, which it was inhabiting for about 20 years? So the interesting part about the CEU Budapest was that it was six buildings in the city center, but it was all six buildings which were originally designed to be something different. The idea of having a space which was important from a biodiversity perspective, it was something that came later. But once it was introduced, the concept in a well-supported, well-documented way, the decision makers and the people running the campus, the people funding our redevelopment project agreed with its potential benefits. Perhaps first and foremost about how attractive it would be as a functional, accessible social space. But they weren't uh, discouraged by the fact that it did have tangible biodiversity value as well. So they maybe started off with the idea and the rendered drawings of how nice it would be to be up on top of the rooftop in seeing the Budapest skyline and landscape, uh, but they weren't disappointed either when it was uh, communicated with them that this green rooftop would have biodiversity and heat island reduction value as well. The privately funded rooftop garden has ecological value for the university. A plot that's about 20 square metres of the rooftop is dedicated to a community vegetable garden to grow edible plants throughout the year. The university uses the garden for its own teaching activities and has its own course where students learn the basics of agroecological systems and organic agriculture. But there are also other aspects that are relevant to the business model of the roof garden. Logan provides us with a few insights. We're in the centre of the city in a historic district. From the rooftop, you have a wonderful view of the Buddha Hills and even parts of the Danube River. It has become quite an attractive space to hold an event. There are many different types of events that happen on the rooftop, from morning yoga sessions to nighttime film screenings. From a social and also from both an economic perspective, it becomes a nice place to host the reception of a number of events which the community would be welcome to. So that does have a positive economic impact on the attractiveness of the university for hosting conferences and different types of events as well. And I would say for student life, it creates a nice opportunity to escape I think it has a positive benefit on reducing stress and giving people a place to have some fresh air throughout the day. There's a lot of benefits as far as having a campus in the center of a city, uh, especially with regard to accessibility. But the limitation in having a campus in the city is that you do really lack access to natural spaces, green spaces, shaded outdoor areas. And the rooftop was trying to create a bit of a urban oasis in the middle of what we're surrounded by, which is largely a concrete jungle of the cities, not so different from many capital cities in Europe. The example presented by Logan shows us a relatively simple business model. The university has invested money in the roof garden and thus received direct added value. 
This makes the university location enormously attractive both for students and external event participants. On the other hand, the garden can be used for the university's own courses and activities. If we take a look at the Food for Good project from Utrecht, the business model is a bit more complex. Food for Good is a community garden in which citizens and disadvantaged groups work together to grow healthy crops in a sustainable way. In doing so, the project promotes social cohesion in the neighbourhood, as well as sustainable agriculture. The project has an impact on many areas of the local government. Hans Pigels, the founder of Food for Good, explains the difficulties involved in financing it with public funds. Food for Good are like a city farm project. It makes an impact on lots of different domains. And there's in the Netherlands from the Wageningen University that did some research. And we also in Utrecht did some research with the local government. And we found out that in all 12 domains of a local government, of the local municipality, Food for Good or a city farm project, which is also a care farm, has effects on all these domains. And then it's about uh, employment, about well-being, about health, about education, about nature, our climate, economic value of the buildings around it, feeling of safety in the surroundings, uh, and so on. And all these 12 domains, it has an effect. That's very special, but that is also a big challenge because a local government is, we get paid only from one of those 12 domains. That's the only space from well-being. And that's the only domain that pays for what we do at Food for Good. And the other domains, they get value from what we do, but they don't pay for it. And that's a big challenge for small organizations with an integral project with a lot of different goals. Hans has already tried accessing various financing schemes during the project period. At the moment, the project is mainly financed by public funds because of its function as a care farm. For investments, it's easy to find uh, big foundations which want to support us. Mostly all the investments we did is paid from these foundations. But that's only one time then. Eh? We built something new. We built a pizza uh, school and then we get money for it or we built uh, something else and we get money for it. But in the exploitation, that's the biggest uh, challenge because there's no foundation which wants to pay for the exploitation of a project. The only thing which makes Food for Good like a business is being a care farm. So that's where we focused on, to be a, a care farm and to get in all these different uh, subsidies and all the things there are around care farming in Utrecht. So it's about 80% of the money we get in is from the care part. So we get money to create a space where people can come. It's very open and there's a special arrangement for people who need more guidance, who need more reference and then we get paid more for them. That's our main income. As we can see, more than 80% of the project is financed by public funds. Part of the remaining 20% is generated by cooperation with other entrepreneurs, as Hans tells us. And then we also work together with entrepreneurs one of them is a beekeeper. So we have also uh, financial deals, so how we sell this honey and we make a profit of it. And we work together with the Pizza Academy. They teach people, also refugees or people who are unemployed. So they learn how to make pizzas and they can yeah, to get a, a job, to get a profession of it. And that's the intern organization. But what about the core of the project, the garden? What role does the garden play in the business model of Food for Good? 
The thing which we are is being a garden. So we sell vegetables. Most we sell to a food corporation. That's our citizens from Utrecht uh, who decided we don't buy food at the shop, but we buy it directly at the farms. And all the organization, they buy food from all different farms around in and around Utrecht. And that's our biggest client. Then we sell vegetables in our garden. We have a small shop. So people uh, come by and they sell the vegetables. We have a few restaurants with buy vegetables, but that's only 5% of those 20%. I want to add that interesting thing is that you have a garden. There's a lot of things going about about local food. But when you see that only 5% of our income is from selling the food, that's nothing. The selling of food is not really commercial in a city. The scale is too small. Sometimes people say we have to grow food inside of the city, but it's very hard to make a business model of growing food in a city on such a small scale. For the business model of Food for Good, the sale of vegetables is therefore not very relevant. But for the social component, it plays an important role. But on the other side, that's also nice to add cost up all the people who work in the garden, the volunteers. And for them, it's the biggest goal, growing food. We have to sell vegetables. That's the meaning of the garden. And for them, it's really uh, when uh, someone comes and a customer buys something for 30 euro, they have a, wow, we have sold so much to a client today. And that's the benefit for the people in the garden. Because that's what in the daily life in the garden, it's about growing vegetables and selling them. That's what we are. And all the things around it, most people don't see it. The initiatives presented by our guests demonstrate that choosing the right business model is difficult and can take many forms with no one-solution-fits-all model. While nature-based solutions might be financed by a single investor, as in the case of the Central European University, they can also be supported by more complex business models and utilise a combination of different kinds of public and private funding, as was the case in Food for Good. If you want to learn about more concrete examples of urban green solutions and their business models, we invite you to check out the business model catalogue for urban nature-based solutions produced as part of the Naturevation project. Financing is also one of the topics covered by the Urban Nature online course available on the Coursera platform. Finally, you can find specific examples from around Europe in the Naturevation Urban Nature Atlas. All relevant links will be available in the podcast show notes. Thanks for listening, and we look forward to welcoming you to our next episode on Innovation Pathways of Nature-Based Solutions. See you there. Goodbye.